Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper-Whipfley. And me, Catherine Mahoney. We will be talking about all aspects of sarcoma. Each week, we'll be joined by patients, family and friends, medics, specialists in the sarcoma field, as well as hearing from the two foundations behind creating this podcast, Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. In this episode, we'll be chatting with Mandy Basson from Socket to Sarcoma, Mitch and Mum Tanya from the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation, as well as the CEO of the Australia and New Zealand Sarcoma Association, Dr. Denise Caruso. This is a project that myself and Catherine are very passionate and invested in. Back in 2017, we met an incredible young man called Cooper Rice Braiding. Cooper had recently been diagnosed with osteosarcoma and we met him through Nova Radio here in Sydney, where we both worked. We were immediately taken back by what an articulate, strong and wise beyond his years young man he was. We attended the inaugural fundraising event where Cooper spoke and we were so in awe of what a courageous young man he was. He couldn't shake the pair of us after that and a strong bond and friendship began. Although Cooper sadly lost his battle, his incredible legacy and foundation lives on. Since the inception of this podcast, we have also been honoured to meet Mandy Basson and see firsthand the work her daughter Abby started with Socket to Sarcoma. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. Rate and review if you like, and please share it through your social media network and help Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundations spread the word. Well, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Denise Caruso. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? Very good. First up, in terms that our listeners can all understand, what, what is sarcoma? So sarcomas are a cancer. Um, I might just take a step back. Do people know what cancer is exactly? I guess we mm, think we do. Th- has a rough yes. understanding. It's a, a yeah. mutated cell of some type. Right. So it's cells that are growing out of control. That can happen anywhere. Um, And what we're all familiar with is, you know, a breast cancer, it's always in the breast. Or we're familiar with prostate, it's always in the prostate. But sarcomas are cells that are growing out of control that make a tumor and can be anywhere in the body because they affect the bones and all the soft tissues and connective tissues that are around all these vital organs. So when we talk about sarcoma, we always talk about it as a, as a rare form of cancer. And the statistics say that one in five childhood cancers is a sarcoma. That would suggest it's not as rare as maybe we think. Can you explain why that is? So first of all, I just want to highlight that childhood cancers themselves are exceedingly rare. So if we have one in five of rare, we're really rare. And then once we start talking about all the different kinds of sarcomas, which we will get to, I know, we get rarer and rarer and finer and finer. So you end up with a situation where really clinicians would see, you know, maybe what, like a GP might see one sarcoma their whole career. Right, um, okay. If that. So this is the issue we're up against. And then if we say one sarcoma underneath that, there's, you know, really over, well over 150 different diagnoses of specialized different kinds of sarcomas. So if you cut it down even finer, finer you can see what we're really, really in a challenging space. Which age groups are most commonly affected, Denise? 
Well, the older older population is generally. So we have about 1% in childhood cancers, and childhood cancer is defined up until the age of 14. Right. And then we have the adolescent and young adult group, which about they're all those cancers, those kids get 20% of those are sarcomas. And then out of all the adult cancers, it's about 10%. And how are they most commonly discovered, Denise? Well, they're a lump, funny little lump, but it's not causing me any problems, whatever. It's fine. And then you have the other ones that are, um, especially for bone sarcomas and the joints and the long bones. And then again, it's a lump, but they might think, oh, it's swelling from a sports injury. Sure. Especially in that AYA young group, they're so active and sporty. And you present to the physio with a swollen knee that just doesn't seem to resolve. And of course, the first thing anyone is going to say is, oh, well, it's a sporting injury. You're active, you're playing cricket, you're playing footy. And so in that way, we often find that the diagnosis is delayed. It's just so rare. It's not the top of mind. At what stage would you say um, an otherwise healthy young person needs, you know, who has a persistent symptom to be checked by a doctor? What we always recommend is, you know, really trust yourself and be your own advocate. If you go to the doctor or the physio and they go, yeah, 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 come back in two weeks and there's no change, you really need to be a strong advocate for yourself and go, you know, it's just not right. What's the next step? What's the next escalation? Do we need the x-ray? Do we need the scan? Do you need to send me on to someone? That's my biggest thing is that people really need to advocate for themselves, which is a hard thing to do when nobody knows what you're dealing with. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, at that age, especially in your teens, oh, it's growing pains. Oh, you know, you you sort of you just don't for a second think it might be something more. So you're right. You really you really have to have people kind of dig deep and, and advocate for themselves when it comes to that. Yeah. And I mean, that that advice goes more broadly than sarcoma as well, of course. You know, I mean, it's not right. You need to keep keep pushing. Mm-hmm. And the diagnosis, I mean, if it's like you said, it's very rare. A GP might experience one in their career. Then you go along to the physio. If the physio doesn't like it, I assume just the next step is a scan. And that's obviously the most common way of the reveal. Yes, that's right. Usually, um, you know, it doesn't go away. All right, let's order an x-ray. And then, oh, it's still not right. Maybe we do um, a CT scan or another kind of scan. And that in itself will give you a lot of information. But the definitive diagnosis is when you have a biopsy. And those should be referred on to specialist centers. Those should not be done in the general GP realm. When it comes to treatment in the public versus the private system, is there, is there a lot of difference in this space? No, there isn't. Because sarcomas are so rare and because very few people are expert in treating sarcomas, a lot of the same people you'd see at the public hospital may have private rooms. So to be honest, we're a very tight-knit group. So those those fears are not going to be um, an issue in getting good care. Denise, how did this become a focus for you? So my background is a tumor immunology. So I was very interested in how the immune system can um, be harnessed to fight your own tumor. You know, you might be aware that that's what's been a huge step forward in melanoma research. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of work that I was interested in. The reason that that's such an exciting way forward is because, you know, chemotherapy kills everything that divides, which is why I went back to that initial idea about what is a cancer and why do we have sure. these terrible symptoms. And so the way the immune system works is very specific. Um, If you can think about a peanut allergy, very specific. That's why we wanted a specific but very powerful response against your tumor. And so I started doing uh, clinical trials at the Children's here in Melbourne, working with kids with sarcoma and other solid tumors that had failed standard therapies and giving them immunotherapy against their own tumors. 
it's so great to be able to harness that and that's a lot of the conversations we've had around that is the work towards the immune system as the greatest defense well that's right it has everything we want it has that that beautiful specificity it has a lot of power I think we're learning more and more how to direct it. The challenge is that you need to give the immune system something to attack, right? And that's why melanoma is so awesome because it has a big, huge thing sticking up on their cell surface that is just on this, the cancer cell. And it's a little bit more challenging when you have tissues that don't have anything that just define them specifically as a tumor cell that the immune system can see. And that's where you get the CAR T cell therapies. I don't know if you've heard about those where they're actually engineering something to be sticking up on there. Right. Okay. So um, that the T cell can then go and attack. So that's why um, I think it will find um, immunotherapies become more standard therapies in conjunction with with traditional therapies and probably more uh, long term. So we look at maybe treating cancer and sarcoma specifically as um, not so much an acute phase, but almost like a chronic thing that we manage. There's so much going into clinical trials and exploration into this space. How does a patient get involved in a clinical trial? Right. So clinical trials are not always, um, some people have this perception that it's a guinea pig thing. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not the case at all. And in fact, the best care is done on a clinical trial, even if it's not with a new drug. It may be, you know, comparing two things that we've done for 100 years and just seeing which is better or, which, or even a delivery of something that's not going to change. But so there's lots of different ways that we can look at clinical trials. And I don't want anyone to ever think that, oh, I'm a guinea pig and mm-hmm. nobody knows yeah, what they're course. doing. That's definitely not the case. So uh, clinical trials are an important and only way that we can improve outcomes really for our patients. And so in the sarcoma space, because they're so crazy rare, we work very, very closely with our overseas colleagues and we do the same trials across many, many countries to make sure that we get enough patients and get enough data to have a robust and significant result. Going back to your question really was, how do you get involved? So for us in the sarcoma world, where there's a lot of push to make sure that you're treated by a sarcoma specialist, uh, which is, we absolutely 100% recommend that. That's our biggest message today is to get into a specialist sarcoma treatment center. They will have the clinical trial for you. It's just good to know that that exists. You know, Mm -hmm. if someone finds themselves in this situation, you know, just to hear that that exists must buy them a lot of comfort. Yeah. So the clinical trials, if there is one available for your eligibility, it will be found in those centers. Now, given that I've just explained that sarcomas are so many different diseases underneath that umbrella of the term sarcoma, there isn't always going to be one for you. There isn't always, you may not be eligible for one that might sound like it's for you. So that again is another challenge that we're always, you know, up against really, um, is making sure that we can um, accommodate as many patients as possible to get them on trials. But you won't find a sarcoma clinical trial at your local regional hospital, but you must be at one of the sarcoma centers. So, Denise, you're the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Sarcoma Association. Is that right? Yes, that is. Yep. Tell us more about that. Right. So, our organization is the peak body for sarcoma um, across the region. We are the group that's responsible for running the clinical trials for sarcoma patients. Uh, We are also responsible for maintaining awareness and professional development. We have issued, you know, guidelines for treatment and patients. Um, So as I said before, we're pretty tight knit group. There's not a lot of people who are willing to enter this space professionally. It's challenging. We have a harder remit 
I, I think, against some of the other ones. So we are quite a tight-knit community. Um, so our work is really to improve patient outcomes for sarcoma patients and their families. And this does go across all age groups and all of the different sarcoma diagnoses there are. We aim to not only provide clinical trials when they're available, but we also have a sarcoma research grant program that we fund for more basic science uh, research and translational science research, so more lab-based work, so that we can then develop that up and really try and push the boundaries to find out how we can improve um, outcomes. Yeah. Now, through our friendship with Cooper and our relationship with both the foundations that uh, are putting together this podcast, Whipper and I are across multidisciplinary teams and what they what that means. But obviously, for our listeners who might not have come across MDT, can you explain what that is and how that can help a patient? Right. So as I've mentioned a few times already, we're really pushing to make sure that patients get to the sarcoma specialist centers. And that's because they're, they're treated with a multidisciplinary team. And what that means, because sarcomas are, are so complex, you do actually need a huge team of professionals around you to get you through your therapy. So most uh, sarcomas, they are run by surgeons, so an orthopedic surgeon or a general mm-hmm. surgeon. Um, and then you have your medical oncologist that prescribes your chemotherapy. You have your radiation oncologist for your radiotherapy. You also have physiotherapy, uh, rehab. We have our pathologists. We have our specialist pharmacists. We have amazing, amazing sarcoma nurses. Um, so that whole group meets usually once a week or every other week at these major centers. All the sarcoma cases are presented and talked about what is the best strategy? What is the best regimen mm-hmm. for this patient at this time? And it really, really needs everyone's involvement um, to get on board. Yeah. So what happens if a patient lives in a remote area? Do they still have access to an MDT? Yeah, so this is one of our challenges, and we do have um, a real problem with that because really you have to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really no way around it. We wish there was. Um, where I know a lot of other tumor streams are able to accommodate that more regional, rural thing. But for us, because it's so complex, it's so, so rare, you really do need to come in and be seen. And that does create challenges for our families, um, which I wish weren't there, but unfortunately they still are. Yeah. And did COVID um, really impact people's MDTs? Well, the MDT still met, so that didn't really impact too much. Um, some of the hospitals did uh, stop recruiting to our clinical trials, just as a precaution, um, more about resourcing the hospitals than protecting our patients so much. The other thing that's been, for us, really impacted We're heavily reliant on donations to actually conduct our research. And of course, COVID has been a huge impact in that respect for us. No more fun runs. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, that's been a challenge for for a lot of charities. And just to then also think about a a different way of, you know, there was a a virtual ride that took place the other day instead of the bike ride that they normally do. You know, it's been a challenge, I think, for a lot of people to try and work out how they can continue to keep the funds coming in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're certainly not the only group that's affected Mm, in that way. mm. Mm. I've noticed um, ANZA have a consumery advisory panel whose role it is to support, mentor, advocate and train the sarcoma community through its committee and consumer advocates. Can you tell us a little about how you do this and as a newly diagnosed patient, how they avail themselves to this service? All right. So our consumer advisory panel is, you know, it's basically a, um, a committee that 
meets with, um, we have a nurse, we have medical oncologists, and we have patients and carers. And their role is to tell us what to do, basically, and, and what is helpful. So you'll see, uh, we redeveloped our website a year or two ago, and they were instrumental in what information needs to be there and what that information should look like. For instance, one of the things that we talked about at our meeting, we meet face to well, we used to make face to face twice a year, uh, was that, is it okay for me to ask for a second opinion? Like, is my doctor going to be mad at me? Is Can I say no to being asked to be in a clinical trial? And, you know, these are the kinds of things that are so basic and fundamental that having been in this space so much, maybe it wouldn't have been front of mind that that was a worry. Yep. So their input was so critical for us to make sure that we have all those resources and tools on our website for people. So a lot that comes out on our website has been informed and suggested and developed by our CAP for the July is um, Sarcoma Awareness Month. It's the international month. And so we have four webinars. And again, those are completely developed through our CAP about what is the information that people are needing and wanting um, and how can we deliver that to them in a way that's easily understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Great work. Um, Finally, summarizing, what would your parting message be for those listening to the podcast? One that sarcoma is a cancer, it's just like any other cancer. Um, I think sometimes that gets a little bit lost. Uh, it's challenging. It's complex. It's really can affect anybody, anytime, anywhere. And I think the other thing that I wanted to say more for patients is, you know, to really get to that sarcoma center. That is going to be key to your best outcome. Mm-hmm. That's, that's critically important um, for anyone who's interested in this um, information. Yeah, it's crucial. Crucial to hear that. Dr. Denise Caruso, thank you so much for your time and an amazing job that you and the team are doing. Thank you very much. Thanks, a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We are joined on the podcast by Mitch and Tanya Rice-Braiding, two people I've been very lucky to know for many years now. Welcome to the podcast. Cheers, Kath. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. So I guess let's start at the beginning. Why are we all on this journey together? Well, four years ago, we had a a very healthy, sport-loving 16-year-old who who was experiencing a little um, pain in the arm, and it it was persistent. And uh, it it came to the fore in Melbourne um, on a father-son trip to the Australian Open, Cooper you know, just turned 17 and he talked his dad into uh, lifting weights. He was always banned from the gym until that that time. And um, he went to do a bench press with a very small amount of weight on in the hotel gym and it was excruciating. And he was very angry because he was fairly certain he'd pulled a muscle just in that one movement. He was an elite cricketer and the cricket season, he was right in the middle of the cricket season. He came back to Sydney. It was seen to straight away by a physio. Physio wasn't happy after a week. They'd noticed an atrophy of the muscle and so uh, sent him for a referral to a sports medicine doctor. Um, I was in that consultation. He was incredibly thorough. And it wasn't until the end of the consultation, which is almost an hour, he asked Cooper uh, about anything unusual that he'd noticed over the past couple of months. And Cooper mentioned that he'd, he was doing a cover drive the week before and experienced numbness up his arm. That was the red flag. 
the muscle damage doesn't present in that way. So the uh, sports medicine doctor sent him straight for an MRI. Now you can imagine, Cooper didn't want an MRI. You know, he knew what his diagnosis was. So of course he was um, grumbling the whole way in the car. And I gave that job to Colin to take him to the radiologist. And um, I thought it was quite odd. Time had been ticking away. The appointment, I think, was 3.30. It was after 5. And um, then the phone rang. And it was it was quite surreal. Um, it was actually the sports medicine doctor. He said to me, he, well, first of all, he asked me whether um, I was with Cooper. And I said, no, no, Colin is. And I said, is there something wrong? And he said, Cooper has cancer. And I was literally left without breath. I remember and always will remember that moment for the rest of my life. I guess it was so surreal that I didn't really know what the next question was or should have been. I had to take quite a few moments to digest it. And, of course, I said, it just can't be right. And it had been diagnosed via MRI. He'd been there for over an hour, sandwiched in an MRI machine while they made the diagnosis. And fortunately, there was a radiographer on duty that day who could read the scan very clearly and organise the next steps immediately. So that that's how the journey started. After that, uh, treatment began very quickly. There was a biopsy arranged. It was all very quick. And uh, the diagnosis wasn't determined until around an hour before he commenced treatment. There were differing opinions as to whether it was Ewing sarcoma or osteosarcoma, and both are treated in slightly different ways. So uh, that commenced the journey for Cooper. One of the treatment protocols required Cooper to be in a hospital for uh, many weeks, 41 weeks actually. And that really set the wheels in motion for the foundation. About a week in, he was asking questions about the other patients down the hallway. Do they have their parents with them? What happens if they don't have parents that can be with them like you can? There were a multitude of questions just coming fast. And I sadly didn't have the answers to a lot of those questions. Every time his medical team would enter the room, they'd have to come armed with answers. And if they didn't have those answers, they'd be required to go get them and bring them back. He was always very interested in getting information from the source rather than via the internet, via other means, which he found quite confronting, as did we at the time. So um, that's how the foundation was formed. It, it, it was the chair by the bedside. And the, the fact that Cooper identified very early in the piece that his cancer was um, not like other childhood cancers, it, there was a, a huge inequity. And he wanted that addressed very quickly. So he felt that funding probably was going to help the issue somewhat. Funding improved survival outcomes and treatment options for young sarcoma patients. Mm. Amazing to think that he was there with his own challenge at hand, but his thoughts were with the other people doing it tough down the hallway to make sure that, you know, those without families, you know, what, what, how are they feeling? What are they doing? 
you know, that represents and, and captures Cooper immensely, doesn't it? It, it does. In terms of the character. It, it, it really does. Uh, I think too, I was by his bedside 24 by 7 and I think I drove him absolutely mad. I mean, no teenage boy wants their mother that close to them for that amount of time. But there was a point when he realised that it was almost required because there were certain things that he did need assistance with and it wasn't always up to the nursing staff to provide that assistance. So that sparked the the conversation on what was happening up the, the hallway. But because he was confined to his room and to bed at the time, he couldn't actually see what we could see going on in other parts of the hospital. And I think on some level that was fortuitous. It was probably not a bad thing. Was there a lot of support for you and the family when you were going through the early months with Coop? Uh, certainly from family and friends. We're very, very fortunate to have such a great bunch of people around us and it really did take the edge off what was happening around us. We lived in a bubble. The world was was literally, you know, just bubbling along outside and our lives were on hold and it was almost like living in a fog day in and day out. And and so our friends and support network were the conduit to the outside world and they were very important, very important to Cooper as well. His friends you know, were just incredible and kept him with that sense of normalcy which he yearned for from, from day one. And they've continued to be as well. In terms of maintaining Coops's legacy after he's passed away, the efforts they've put into helping us grow the foundation into what it is right now, they've been incredible. I mean, we saw not long ago just the rally of support of um, the social media campaign, tipping other people in which we've spoken about tenure, which was just fantastic just to see everybody you know putting their hand up and calling out other people which I think is great fun uh, as well and a great way to drive you know donations but more and more and I think you know with with a lot of charities people are often confused by the impact of donations they wonder if where the money's going maybe they don't know maybe it's a, a, a an auction or an event and you know you the outlines aren't clear but you know we've spoken over the time about how clear and and precise the impact of donations do have. Could you expand on that a bit further in mm. terms of where the money goes and what it does? Sarcoma is, is driven by philanthropy. Given that it's a cancer that receives less than 1% of federal government funding at this point, the kindness and generosity of the general public are what tends to change um, lives, young lives moving forward. It facilitates research, it facilitates patient support programs, awareness campaigns. So fr from our point of view, we have always set out to, to make sure that every cent of tax-deductible donations are always directed to the cause. So that's never touched. Mm. And that, that has a downside because, of course, when you um, host a function, Mm. That can be problematic, but we set up a trust initially, the family did, to cover additional costs so that we didn't have to ever delve into. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that, that that is the right or wrong way to do it. This is just the model that we've chosen because it, it, it's such a neglected cancer that it would feel 
very wrong to be using money for life-saving research. To it is so really that balance hard. is very very tricky. Impossible. But that is where people like yourselves uh, come into to play. The generosity of people who really can help. You have a currency. You use it very very wisely. And you don't just use it for CRBF. That's where the difference is made. Because it's fair to say that a lot of people aren't terribly interested in listening to a grieving family, but they will listen to, to somebody who is maybe a public figure or indeed, um, you know, whether it be media, sports, whatever. And I think that's what Cooper always aimed to do. I remember a speech that he gave where he said, sarcoma is very tough because it, it hits adolescents hard. We're pimply faced teenagers. We haven't had a chance to live and most of us probably won't get that chance. So I feel that we need to, to leverage, you know, the contacts that I've made in my very brief life to help us. And that's exactly how we've moved forward. We've tried to to use his vision with pretty much everything to drive the foundation forward. And we've tried to keep it very intimate, not just pick random people to, to represent Cooper's work. It's more a labour of love. It's from people that knew him, cared for him, and, and want his vision to be realised. We both certainly want to shine the light on sarcoma mm. because I, I didn't even know what sarcoma was till I met Coop. And, you know, working on this project, talking to friends, people need to be educated about what sarcoma is and how they can help and who it affects. Yes, that's absolutely right. I hasten to say, despite our best efforts, and when I say our, I, I mean all of the sarcoma not-for-profits and our national scientific body, answer. I would suggest that it is still very difficult to spread the word. It's not an attractive subject. It's not something that everybody wants to hear about. It's fair to say in the world at the moment, there is a lot going on and people need a release. Sometimes this sort of subject matter is just way too heavy. And I understand that. And that's why we always have to be incredibly careful with timing and placement of everything we do and, and who it affects and impacts. Otherwise we can be, we walk a, a tightrope, I, I believe, with everything we do. So it can be very, very difficult getting the word out. And, and that's what we're trying to do with National Sarcoma Month. Yes. Mm. And you guys, you really understand the importance of collaborating with mm. other foundations and government bodies, don't you? Yeah, it's interesting. We start out with a very pure thought and, and aim in mind. And very quickly you realise that you cannot do this alone. You must work with, not, not that we ever set out not to, but it, it was, it's a very personal thing. When you lose a child to a cancer, it doesn't matter which cancer, and you have a purpose in mind, that, that's a very personal thing that you're taking on there. And you'll find that most sarcoma organisations, if not all, are the legacy of a, a child or a loved one. And as such, there's a, there's a very healthy mutual respect that exists within that space. So collaborating can only lead to better things in the future. We have our first submission into the federal government at the moment. 
It is, um, again, it's for a national sarcoma initiative, which will touch on all of the stakeholders around Australia, but reaching internationally as well. It, it, it's starting in your own backyard and, and basically just building and building until every facet is in place. And so the National Sarcoma Initiative, we're hoping, will mirror the great work that the Brain Cancer Mission Sure. has done with the assistance of Mindaroo. Mindaroo, the Mindaroo Foundation have been marvellous to us. Their support has been invaluable in terms of structuring and just standing back and looking at what we need to do to really further this cause and to get the job done efficiently. And money simply can't buy that sort of expertise, the expertise that the Mindaroo Foundation certainly have in that area. And uh, so we wait, obviously, with COVID. We can't expect our um, submission to be advancing. It's just not realistic. However, as soon as things die down a little bit, we're expecting to be moving at, at, at quite a, a hectic pace. So I think for anybody listening today who probably isn't feeling as comfortable as they might like to be, whatever stage of their treatment they might be at, just know that there is so much hope around the corner. The movement in this particular space is incredible in just three short years. It's good to know. Yeah, and I think it's it's important for patients and families to understand that that is the case. It's not always out there. It's not always public. But believe me, it's absolutely happening. Is that in the treatment or the exploration for a cure or...? Look, research, medical research, for instance, we have the IL-23 trial which will be launched in, in Q4 this year and that's at the Garvin Institute Medical Research under the watchful eye of Professor David Thomas and Professor Maya Kansara. And that marks 10 years of laboratory research that has gone into the finished result, which will be the translational out of the laboratory, first time tested in the world on humans, and it's happening literally just up the road. Wow. Yes. The advances, the efficacy that this has shown to date in uh, mice, if, if, if it is translated to humans, is something that we can only hope is going to revolutionize the way forward. Even if this is the first step, it is a very, very important step because it will start off with a sample of osteosarcoma patients and it will advance to uh, all subtypes. And uh, look, Professor David Thomas will speak more about this in the clinician's session, but it it really does, um, it, it does present as a game changer further down the track and we're very, very excited about it. Again, it, it is one of many pipeline research projects that are going on at the moment and they all, in their own way, provide enormous hope. It's fantastic. Mm. Mm. You guys should be so proud of what you've, what you, the legacy that you've continued for Coop. I think we're very, very proud of the way Cooper actually positioned this. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's interesting. At the time, he he understood that it would more than likely not benefit him. However, he was bloody minded about his approach and really wanted to get this word out. 
And I think this is, you start very, very small and then you grow. We've grown exponentially and we all attribute where we are today and where we're heading to Cooper's passion for cause when he was so, so ill and really just wanted to make a difference. Do you know this all started, it's an interesting story, started from a throwaway comment from one of his clinicians who said, answer to one of his questions, and I can't remember what the question was, but the answer was, well, the treatment options are like dipping your hand into a box of Smarties. You know, you try the yellow ones, you try the green ones, you try the red ones till you find the one that that you like, and it is a similar thing to sarcoma. It's not always a surefire treatment option that might show efficacy. However, we can try again or we can try experimental. I don't necessarily think that that's a, a really positive way for a lot of young patients or patients, full stop, to start their cancer journey. I think um, we need to have something a, a little more, uh, yeah, exactly, a little more definitive and, yeah. uh, and, and as you said, with direction. Mitch, can I ask? Cooper, and knowing Cooper too, as a young man yourself, you must take a lot of courage and lessons in your life, you know, at this stage of your life as a young man, with the bravery that Coop showed. Like I was always, I just admired how strong and how brave he was at every turn, whatever the challenge was. You know, the conversation was always there. The time I spent with him, he was—he always found the energy to make sure that, you know, uh, the dialogue was normal between two blokes. You know, the conversation was as any, as any two guys catching up, up at the pub would be. But to know what he went through and the fight that he had, that must... That must play a huge role in, in your life and the, the positive outlook, I suppose, you take and the bravery you look for at, at times. No doubt. One of my most endearing memories is of when we first found out of Coops's diagnosis. Mum rang me. I drove straight home and we were bawling our eyes out for half an hour. Knowing Coops was coming in the door pretty soon, so we are just getting rid of all our emotions because we, we had to be strong for when he got home. Mm. He walks in the door. He could tell immediately mum had been crying. I was sitting on the living room couch a while away. He walks in and goes, mum, why have you been crying? Oh, about the the diagnosis. Don't worry about that. We'll get through it. And I was sitting on my, the couch over there being like, how the hell has he just come in with that yeah. sort of courage and that sort of, yeah. And That was watch, his approach, wasn't it? Exactly. And then watching him, the way he handled himself uh, throughout his battle, like his decision was to try and make things as normal as possible which there's a thousand ways you can go about a treatment. There's no right or wrong way to, for how you attack it, but that was his approach. And it was incredibly brave. And the stoicism he showed the entire journey was remarkable Inspirational. for me. Up until his last days. And then, yeah, now I have a photo on my desk and anytime I feel lazy or just feel like not getting out of bed or not doing that extra bit of study, I look at that photo and think he wouldn't mind being here right now having the opportunity to have yep. a crack. So, yep. Uh, I think that's so powerful. I think we've all got a photo of Coop. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I certainly do. And it's exactly that. The days that you start to have a pity party because, you know, your trousers might not fit anymore since COVID. You just go, actually, you know, let's just get on with this. But we were blown away weren't we, when we met Coop. And especially when he spoke at, um, was it the inaugural ball for the foundation? Yeah, he's a brilliant speaker. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Oh, you know, I've got goosebumps mm. just thinking about it. So I, I, he is an inspiration. And, and I think what he 
set up and what you guys continue to do is wonderful because you're still mourning the loss, but you're moving forward and you're helping other people, you know, one step in front of the other, as Coop used to say. Do you guys want to give advice to anyone listening that's about to go through this journey? One piece of, I suppose you could call it advice, is for all new patients, it's terribly important to remember to run your own race. Mm -hmm. You may have a a sarcoma subtype which is potentially not good on paper. That doesn't mean that it's a fait accompli. You need to be able to, okay, if, if statistics are your thing, that's fine, but just remember everybody runs their own race. And it's not just sarcoma patients, it's all cancer patients. And you never pitch yourself against the person in the room next to you. And I think that That's good advice. That mm-hmm. was Cooper's advice. He he would he refused point blank to be given a terminal diagnosis. He refused point blank to listen to his odds diminishing as they did over eighteen months. He didn't want those conversations. He wanted he wanted, okay, what's next? Yep. What are we doing next? I'm happy to, to look at that. He had a, a stellar medical team, so we were blessed in that respect because no stone was left unturned. So, you know, I think that that's probably from, from my point of view. And to also remember families out there must remember they never walk this road alone. It's terribly important to remember that there are organisations, people, good people to talk to if you're confused, if you're bewildered, feeling a little overwhelmed. There are advocates, people who will willingly go into bat for you at any point from diagnosis mm. throughout treatment. And I I think they're things I would have liked to have known when we set out. It, it is, it's daunting. It takes your breath away. As I said, it physically takes your breath away and not just for a few moments. It, in fact, arguably, it still takes my breath away. I will never get used to the inequity um, that currently exists in this cancer, and that is why I will take my last breath doing what Cooper did. And I, I mirror Mitchell and and Colin in that respect. We're very dedicated to the continuation. And there are lots of ways people can um, support the foundation, aren't they? Yes. Online through the website. We'll have those details on the show episode notes yeah. for people but, to go to. And it doesn't have to be financial. You know, just um, spreading the word can be enough. Talking, mm-hmm. talking about it. We are very, very much about the awareness side of things because the earlier the diagnosis, the more likelihood of a more favourable survival outcome. For me, it's terribly important if, if you're in a peer group and somebody's complaining about consistent pain, it, it, the chances of it being a sarcoma are very, very low. But it's better to rule it out. And that's what most GPs would be doing. They're not looking necessarily for cancer, but it's a really good thing to rule out. Mm. Mm. Well said. Yeah. Tanya and Mitch, thank you so much for your time and sharing why we're all on this journey together. Thank you both. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you both, and thank you for what you brought to Cooper's life. I don't think either of you will ever understand the gravity of the the love and support that you gave him at a time that he really, really needed it. And given he's not here to do that today, I'll do it for him. Thank you. Always, always. Thank you. 
Welcome to the podcast, Mandy. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a good chat. You run Socket to Sarcoma, based in WA, that your daughter Abby started a few years back. Can you tell me about your story and how it all came to eventuate? So I suppose the story for us began back in April of 2009 when um, Abby, who was then 17 and in her first semester of uni at the University of Western Australia studying psychology, she found that she was struggling, uh, had some pain in her back. Being the kind of girl that she was, she decided to be relatively proactive, went to see her GP. So he was very good, sent her for tests, uh, brought her back into the surgery asked her if she'd happened to have an accident and was any reason to have some scar tissue. Um, and she said no. So he said, well, I think we might just get another test and uh, sent her off for a CT scan. And that was Thursday morning. I took her in for the CT scan, dropped her off at the train station for her to go into lectures. And in the course of that conversation, I said, oh, there's nothing too much. You know, if there's anything serious, they would have called you back into the surgery. I was driving away from the station. She, I got a call from her. She said, the GP has just asked me to come into the surgery on a matter of urgency. He's going on holiday and he won't leave until he has spoken with me. So I went to myself, not to her. Mm-hmm. Oh, asterisk, asterisk, mm-hmm. asterisk. Mm-hmm. And I knew enough to know that that meant something sinister. And we went in and by the time she came out of the appointment, she said, I've got cancer. And that was the kind of the whirlwind from there. So it started in to see the orthopedic surgeon, all the various tests, biopsies, PET scan, MRIs, you name it. About three weeks later, we got the definitive diagnosis that she had stage four metastatic Ewing sarcoma, which was rampant through her body. The primary was in her pelvis and it had gone through rest of her bones into her lymph nodes, lungs. But sometimes easier to say where it wasn't than where it was. Gosh. After those tests, you then realised where it, it was all through the body at that stage. That's what stage four means? Stage four, yes. So we knew that right from the beginning that she was already, it was, a, it was an advanced stage of uh, cancer. In fact, to the extent that when they gave us the diagnosis, they said, well, the cancer cells, we reckon they're Ewing's, but they have already mutated. So it could be a rhabdo. It could be something else, but we reckon it's Ewing's. We're going to treat for Ewing's. And uh, yes, so she she was well advanced by the time she actually was diagnosed. Four weeks only after the initial symptoms started. God. And 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 when back to the symptoms, I mean, you talk about a sore back. Everyone gets a sore back every now and then. Was there a lump that was present? Was there any other symptoms? <laughs> Uh, no lump at all. So that's one of the, um, I suppose, the flags for me personally, that when we're talking about sarcoma, that just referring to lumps uh, is something that I I try to uh, reinforce that it might not be a lump. It could just be a pain in her case. She just thought she'd pulled a muscle in the back because she couldn't sit down. She was part-time working in a video store and she was finding it difficult to bend down and pick up the videos. And that shows my age of videos. There were videos then too. <laughs> <Some> <laughs> don't don't I, I remember videos, Mandy, <laughs> okay. even if he doesn't. Uh, but, you know, so for her, and then when she got into the car and I picked her up, you know, she was ginger about sitting down, but she just knew something was bad. And then the thing that finally sent to the GP was that she woke up in the middle of the night with really, really severe pain. 
And she said, to wake up in the night with a severe pain like that, that's not normal. I'm going to go and see the GP. Sure. That was really, it was that severe pain that was the thing that she knew was uh, abnormal and she acted. And, and as you mentioned earlier, great work by the GP because sarcoma is not something that every GP sees in their lifetime. So to pick that up from a 17-year-old was, 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 you know, was incredible, I guess. Well, I, I think we're very lucky and very blessed that we did have a GP that had his ears open and was open to the possibilities. Certainly one of the things I've learned from my interactions with GPs, they say that um, consideration of sarcoma is always a low priority unless they have come across a case before mm-hmm. when it suddenly comes up their radar and they consider it a little bit sooner in that possibility of what a diagnosis might be. But generally, it's very low down because it's rare. We don't consider it. And that's no consolation, unfortunately, to those that are diagnosed with a sarcoma. Because just because it's rare doesn't mean to say it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what were the steps then once you found out where it actually was in the body? What was the process from that point on? Well, in her case, because of where it was in the uh, pelvis, uh, close to the spine, the tumour had already moved slightly towards the spinal cord. What they decided to do, there was no operation uh, viable. We went through the process of chemotherapy and radiation. So she went through uh, 10 months approximately of aggressive radiation, uh, aggressive chemotherapy. And in the course of that, there were six weeks of radiation combined. So we were going from the radiation department, grabbing the sick bowl on the way, rushing over to chemotherapy. The uh, oncology ward had the pain meds and the uh, anti-nausea meds ready to go primed. So we walked in, they had the syringes ready and it was straight in. So that was six weeks of doing that on a daily basis, pretty much. And then she had, uh, after the radiation, we continued with more chemotherapy. So that took us, uh, she was diagnosed, April started treatment in the May and finished treatment in the January when we had the final scans then. And things all looked very good at that stage. It had worked. It looked like it. Uh, but then sarcoma hadn't read the rule book, had it? Hmm. So all, as I say, looked well. There was new growth in the pelvis. So with the bones, that was uh, was really positive. All the metastases in the uh, various parts of the uh, the bones had sort of healed slightly and the lung mets had all gone. So that was fine. Um, she went back to uni part-time, started living life again, as you do. And looking at what the experience had meant for her as a young person going through cancer. So she was right from the early stages, has always, as a young girl and right through her treatment, she was always very community minded and very focused on reasons, causes, what was underlying things. And she wasn't terribly impressed in her cancer journey, not through the quality of the care that she received, but through when she was doing her research, when she was doing her um, discussions with people, when she had to tell people, she was very unimpressed with the lack of awareness about sarcoma right from the start. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to see what she could do 
to improve that. And she wasn't quite sure at that stage exactly what she wanted to do, but she was looking at it, exploring it, wondering why she always had to explain that she, that she didn't have breast cancer or ovarian cancer because she happened to be female. That was the assumption automatically. Mm-hmm. She was dealing with changes in friendship groups because of the way that people did or didn't respond well to the fact that a friend of theirs had chemo. The people she thought were really good friends perhaps uh, couldn't cope with it quite as well. And some and some of the friends that were the best for coping with it were the ones that she didn't expect in the same way. So that was an interesting um, scenario. Not that she was... Um, she wasn't upset or angry or anything like that. She was interested, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Why it happened. The, the psychology of it. I mean, she was studying psychology. Yeah. She wanted to be a forensic psychologist. So it was all about the whys and the mind and how people react and all of those sort of things. So very much in keeping with her natural personality. Um, so all seemed well for a while. Um, back, life back to normal. And then come the middle of the year... She came to me and she said, I think I've got some lumps um, in my my head. And I felt the lumps in her head and we kind of went, I think we need to go and see the oncologist. And we went in and it was confirmed that she had um, some lumps in her lymph nodes and her scalp up there. And he said, I think we'll go for more tests. And then came back from the tests and we were back on the treadmill. This time, unfortunately, we had a lesion in the liver, which I knew was going to be a bigger battle to deal with than just the bones. It was all through the bones again and various things. And then she also had a tumor in her skull, which was very large and was giving her very big headaches. And the uh, radiologist actually said to her, I'm surprised you're even functioning wow. with this tumor in the way that it that, that it was. What then happened was that she they were trying to work out a treatment plan for her. She couldn't have chemo because it was too close to when she had finished chemo before, so she couldn't have any more of that chemo. What were the options for her? And they needed to do radiation on her uh, skull to get this tumour down. And what her oncologist did do was he found her, very, very rarely, a clinical trial, okay, uh, which was for an insulin growth receptor factor. And there were only six patients in Perth that were going to be involved in this trial with sarcoma. She was one of the six. And she then had to make a choice because uh, to be on the trial, she couldn't have the steroids that she would need to reduce the inflammation from the radiation in her head. So she had a choice of, would I be more comfortable or shall I go on the clinical trial? She opted to remain on the clinical trial. The Radiation did reduce the skull tumour so that she was functioning a lot better. They put her on a mild chemotherapy, etoposide, and things seemed to have at least stabilised for a while. They were hoping at one stage that what they would be able to do is to give her a stem cell therapy. And then when they did the uh, bone marrow biopsy, they discovered that the sarcoma was right through her bone marrow as well. So there was no chance for that. Uh, the oral chemotherapy seemed to do a good job uh, beginning of uh, 2011, and she had three months of comparatively really good health. And it was during that time that she came up with her decision to proceed with socket to sarcoma sure. and came up with the idea of what do I want to do? I want to raise funds for research because where's the research happening in WA? Where's the research happening in Australia? There just wasn't enough happening. And her, the way she put it was this. Just because we have a rare cancer does not make us second-class citizens. We deserve to have exactly the same quality of treatment and care that everybody else gets when they have a common cancer. Why do we not deserve that? 
And she said, we do. Therefore, if someone's going to do it or hasn't done it yet, then it's about time I did it. So that's what she did. And she started uh, planning how she would go about it. She did contact a number of the other, um, a lot of other charity organizations, some in the sarcoma field, some in the non-sarcoma field to explore what to do. And uh, started talking to some of the clinicians about possibly what would be a good way to go. And then she got very sick again. She was admitted to hospital. We then had the fact that uh, the, the diagnosis, there was nothing more they could do and we got a terminal diagnosis i actually had to tell her that she was terminal on july the 25th 2011 she turned 20 on july the 28th and she passed away on august the 24th so that was it uh, but one of the in the course of all of that conversation we had socket sarcoma set up we had what she wanted to do and she just said to me can you carry on doing that when i'm gone it's fantastic, isn't it, the work? Uh, emotional story. Thank you for sharing that, Mandy. I mean, you speak about it so factually as if, you know, this is what we need to do now. And you obviously found the strength through all of this just to continue the great work that, you know, she wanted to do and set up. It's very powerful. Well, I think what you did was you hit the nail on the head there where you said need. And I think that's incredibly important. It is the fact that it was necessary. It needed to be done. Mm, mm. I don't think any cancer patient should ever feel that they're not worthy of having best quality care. And I'm hugely an advocate of that. And she was a hugely an advocate of that, that equality, accessibility, availability, choice, information, everyone is entitled to that. And if there is a gap, then it had to be filled. Were you able to continue straight on? I mean, you know, you've just lost your daughter. How did you pick yourself up and keep going? You know, we were very fortunate that one of the things that we did through our journey was we talked about everything. We talked about death. We talked about what she wanted, how it was to be. We were very fortunate she passed away at home in her own bed, uh, which is very comforting. Um, it wasn't in a hospital scenario. We were with her. She was with everyone that she loved. So in many ways, the journey that we had, apart from the fact that we lost her, was a very positive journey. We talked, we didn't leave things unsaid. And I've seen on many occasions that uh, we see it in the news all the time. People are taken away and lost in circumstances, which means you have unfinished business, you have regrets. And so for us, the thing that we were able to say is that at least we had covered everything. We didn't have regrets. And that's hugely empowering, if you like, to do that. And Abby herself was not a complainer. She was not a whinger. She was not a girl who felt sorry for herself. She wasn't after sympathy. She wasn't brave. She said, don't call me brave. I'm just doing what I have to do. And so we did what we had to do, which was have something positive and good come out of what was otherwise a really, you know, could have been very destroying. I think as I say, you know, when something bad happens, you can either let it defeat you, you can let it destroy you, or you can let it strengthen you. And that was our option. Uh, you know, let it let us strengthen it. Let us do something which means that there's a kind of a living, uh, living strength, living energy out there. 
And so that's what we did, what we've taken. And I live that as a mantra all the time, really. Wonderful woman, Mandy. Very, very strong words. Do you think your background in non-for-profit has helped you grow the foundation? I think it's helped. I think, you know, like anything else, when you find yourself uh, with a little bit of knowledge because you've been involved in that sphere before, then it helps you and gives you a bit of grounding. And it means that you're not not only dealing with new areas, but having to navigate all the challenges that are in that really challenging space. Mm -hmm. Because not-for-profit is certainly not something that I would recommend you go into for a picnic. (laughs) Um, You certainly, it's not an easy space. You're not going to have an easy time of it. You're going to work very long hours. You're going to have a lot of um, knockbacks and setbacks and difficulties. And the only thing I can say is that in continuing on with what she set up and continuing to build, I was incredibly fortunate to meet some wonderful, wonderful people in the space who got the idea. They got it and they ran with it with me. And they supported every inch of the way. So it's been a very much, it's certainly not been me on my own. It's been a completely community partnership teamwork achievement. So, yes, I had some knowledge in the not-for-profit space, which was very valuable. But ultimately, um, even with knowledge, if you don't have the passion and the support of people around you, then it doesn't Mm. go very far. Mandy, important point when you talk about, you know, the not-for-profit work and also reading about the National Sarcoma Initiative. So the proposal submitted to the federal government pre-COVID, the amount of work that must go into something like that must be huge. Certainly, it's a topic that I think has been under discussion for a very, very long time. Uh, Because I I guess with something like a rare cancer, and we know there's been a move within the community to recognize rare cancers that little bit more than used to be the case when we first set out. Sure. Um, Rare cancer, sarcoma is almost a dirty word. And so all that time we've talked about, well, you know, maybe a stronger voice and and working together is a, a better way to go. So this initiative is, you know, tremendously exciting because if it does mean that the whole community can get together, driving with a single voice, then we're avoiding missing opportunities, missing gaps. Mm-hmm. We're avoiding duplications and being stronger and using resources wisely and well. Then that is only an advantage in the community and, and setting a standard for quality care um, and outcomes for people who are diagnosed with this rare cancer. Mandy, for a parent that's listening to the podcast with a, with a child that's just been diagnosed with sarcoma, what, what's some of the advice you'd like to pass on to them? I think the first thing I'd say to them is don't panic. The next thing I'd say to them is take every day a bit at a time. Because that's the first thing you live in a, when you're first diagnosed, there's panic you set in, you're imagining the worst possible scenarios and you're in an environment where you really probably don't know an awful lot about what's going on. So go to a valid resource. And that's, I suppose, part of what we're talking about here is trying to provide resources that are factual, that are informative, that are valid so that you go to the right sources because we can all do Dr. Google. We Mm -hmm. can all jump on the web and we can find a myriad of resources and some of them are just downright scary. And so 
your clinicians will no doubt say, to Dr. Google. And that's probably a very, very wise piece of advice. Follow trusted sources. Find, Ask your doctors and your clinicians to recommend you trusted sources. Go and find those and then start the journey and do it a day at a time. And I guess try and smell the roses in that process because, mm-hmm. you know, when you – when you know that there are there is a possible limitation of length of life when you have a child that's diagnosed with something like cancer, and it's inevitable that you consider that there is a possibility that you're going to lose that child, value every moment you have, and it puts your priorities completely differently. You, you know what's important. You know it's that time. It, it's spending time. It's enjoying things. It's not worrying about whether or not the floors are swept or um, things like that. Do the things that really matter. And I would, you know, strongly encourage people to value that because if at the end of the day, everything goes brilliantly well, and that's what we're looking for from outcomes, then you've lost nothing by enjoying all those moments. But if you spent all your time worrying and, and losing track of what's important and enjoying things, and then you do lose that child. You have lost those mm-hmm. the possibilities of all of those wonderful memories that you need. Mandy, through your own experience with Abby, and now I know that your foundation has touched many families with different stories. What what is one of the things that you know you might want to say to a parent or to a, a newly diagnosed patient about the journey ahead that they they're about to hit? What I'd like to encourage people to do is to feel that they're empowered to make the choices that suit them, that when you make decisions, that decision is about you and your journey. You're not doing this for anybody else. You need to know that it is right for you. And I think from a perspective of what families and friends do around you, they should support that decision because choices are not always easy. There are times when what you have to do is you have to make the choice perhaps to stop treatment. And that is a choice. And people don't take that choice lightly. And it should never be seen that people who make that choice have failed in any way, Mm -hmm. that they have given up. They haven't. What they've done is they've empowered their life and they've taken that decision that that is the best thing for them. And for us who continue around them, that might be a hard thing to have to cope with and to accept. But we must and we must support people around who are going through that decision. After all, it is their life, their cancer, and they should have the right to make those choices and to feel that that choice is supported by their loved ones around them, whatever that choice may be. It's great advice, isn't it? You're thrown to consider yourself in that situation, but you're right. You would feel like you are giving up if you made that decision to stop the treatment, but there's a bigger picture. I think sometimes what happens is that when you are diagnosed with cancer, when you have cancer and when you are terminal, and I know for a lot of people that makes us very uncomfortable because in our society, we don't actually talk a great deal about death and how it happens. And, you know, we're all superhuman, we're all super young and we're all going to go on forever. And unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. And sometimes people come to an end a lot quicker than we would want them to do. And we don't have those conversations. So when death comes, we're not comfortable 
we don't know how to deal with it. Um, in society, we used to have generations of families living together and we saw death happening regularly. It would, it would happen as part of the family life. Mm-hmm. But now we don't. Death comes in hospital. We hide it. We don't talk about it. We shield it. And so it's the elephant in the room and we're afraid of it. So what a lot of cancer patients do is that they hang on for the sake of their loved ones. They don't want to upset their loved ones. You very often find when you're in a terminal situation, I apologize if this tends to make people feel uncomfortable, but we need to be open and and honest about some of these challenges that we face. And I know how many cancer patients hang on until they're actually told by their loved ones, it's okay to go. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry about that, but it is hard to say. It's hard to say, but we, sometimes we we have to say that it's all right for you to let go and go. And then many of our loved ones can go more peacefully because of that, they know that it's okay and they don't have to hang on anymore. And we do that because as survivors, we want them to be with us for longer. We want them to be around us for longer. But for them, they need to be allowed to get away from this pain. And we have to let them go with with generosity and with love and with with no recriminations and no guilt. You said that so well, Mandy. So that's so well. Mandy, you've been on this journey for almost 20 years. What are you most proud of? You know, the, the legacy that Abby's left? Um, I, 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 I don't know about pr- proud. Is, is, is it that? Is it how grateful I am that to have been involved with the community that I've met, the, the amazing clinicians who go above and beyond what is their call to try and improve the lot of patients, that the families that, you know, will go to the ends of the earth to do whatever they can for loved ones, the researchers that push their brains to try and find solutions, people that probably I would never, ever, ever have met had I not had this particular journey. So I suppose I'm inordinately grateful for the opportunity to have met the people I have had and the opportunity to have explored some things I would never have done otherwise. Just grateful, I think, if I've come out of anything with that. And hopefully somewhere along the line will have helped someone navigate this journey just a little bit easier because of some of the things we've tried to do. Wonderful. Mandy, that was wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for everything that you and the foundation do. Thank you for having me and uh, it's been lovely to meet you both. Thank you for joining us for episode one of Let's Talk Sarcoma. If you would like more information about this, check out the episode details. You can also go to www.sockettosarcoma.org.au and www.crbf.org.au. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share on your own social media. Next week, we'll be talking to some incredible patients about their sarcoma journeys. Sarcoma Awareness Month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed, and the memories of those who walked this road, fought valiantly, and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. 
Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognize each of these brave individuals. Together with the remarkable not-for-profit organizations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma, including Rainbows for Kate, Kicking Goals for Zav, Hannah's Chance, Stony Steps Against Sarcoma, Joanna Sewell Research Grants, the GPA Andrew Assini Research Grants, and the Sarah Grace Foundation. With the generous help and support of the Australian community, each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and to further shine a light on sarcoma 